James chapter 1. We are excited this morning to begin a four-month series in the book of James. And you will find James at the end of your New Testament. It's right after the book of Hebrews, right before the book of Peter. Though James is physically at the end of the New Testament, chronologically, James is the first book written in the New Testament. It was written sometime between 41 and 45 A.D. The author is James, James the Just, James the brother of Jesus, James the Apostle, James the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And probably James wrote this book from Jerusalem as a pastoral letter to Jewish Christians who were dispersed because of the persecution and who were going preaching the gospel kind of like exiles on earth, suffering for their faith. The epistle of James lacks a clear and systematic progression of thought, but rather it moves from topic to topic in giving us wise living as God's distinct people. Wise living is God's distinct people. James really is a collection of divine wisdom sayings for godly living, much like the Old Testament book of the Proverbs. As a matter of fact, James has often been called the New Testament Proverbs. Of the 108 verses in the book of James, 50 of them contain imperatives or commands of some sort from God on how we should live our lives. Precisely because James is such a practical book, we must be careful in this series to make the connection between gospel imperatives or gospel commands and gospel indicatives or gospel facts. But having made those connections, we can so benefit from James' practical wisdom in teaching us how to live our faith, how to live as Christians. Now, the key verses in James are found in James 1. I'm not going to be preaching on these particular verses, but I wanted to share them with you in this brief introduction. James 1, verses 22 to 25, capture the theme of James. James 1, 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Folks, we are blessed when we look at the mirror that God provides us, in this case, the book of James, and see who we are in Christ, and then, by Christ's power, live like it. See, for James, one's faith is revealed by one's actions. James would actually agree with Martin Luther's statement about faith. Martin Luther once said this, We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that truly saves us is never alone. What does he mean by that? Here's what he means. True faith in Christ produces lives that reflect Christ in everyday thoughts, attitudes, words, 
and actions. So for James, Christian is as Christian does. Thank you to Brendan Joyner for that little phrase. Christian is as Christian does. That'll be, you'll find that as the title of our series if you go on our website. Christian is as Christian does. So with that background, we begin our study of James, looking at verses 1 to 4 and receiving some very practical wisdom for what to do when trials come knocking. James 1, 1 through 4. When trials come knocking. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would anoint my lips to speak your word with unction and power, and that you would anoint the ears of those who hear to hear it with faith to obey. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Because we live in a fallen world, trials are always in the neighborhood. And often, they come knocking at our door. Maybe you've had some of these trials knock on your door recently. Discrimination at work or school because you are a Christian. Conflict at family gatherings because you share your faith. Serious illness or physical pain. Financial reversal, loss of jobs, of homes, of savings. Battles with remaining sin in your life that can be so discouraging in their persistence. And maybe just not getting what you want when you want it. Maybe not getting what you thought you would have by now. The good news, my friend, is that God lovingly uses these trials for his eternal purposes in your life. God's command to you today is for you to submit to his purposes in trials by faith. If you look at your notes, submit to God's purposes in trials. That is the main point of this message. Submit to God's purposes in your trials. Now see, God forges our faith in trials, dear friends. For that reason, he wants you to submit to his purposes in trials. Now, James 1, 1 through 4, reveals to us that in order for us to submit to God's purposes in our trials, we've got to do three things. Those are the three points that are listed in your notes. Number one, we must define ourselves as servants of God. Define yourself as a servant of God. Number two, greet trials with joy. Greet trials with joy. And number three, let steadfastness have its perfect work in you. So point one, define yourself as a servant of God. The first step here in submitting to God's purposes and trials is not a command, it's a condition. It it speaks to how you and I should think about ourselves or how we should define ourselves in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Take a look at verse 1. The very first part of that verse. See how James defines himself. James, 
a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, James thought of himself as a servant. That word there is doulos. It can also be translated bond slave. See, James did not primarily define himself as the brother of Jesus or as the leader of the church in Jerusalem or even as an apostle. No, he chose the word servant, doulos. Why? Because he understood that he was a bond slave of his master who bought him. Yes. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19b and 20a come to mind when we hear that kind of verbiage. Read it with me. 1 Corinthians 6, 19b and 20a. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. James thought of himself as a bond slave because he understood that he'd been bought with a price from the slavery of sin and death. And he was now willingly, voluntarily, a servant of the one who bought him. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15, elaborate on this theme. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Verse 15, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Folks, when you see verbiage in the New Testament like that, for him who died and was raised, that's gospel talk. And this is the gospel talk that we need to walk as we define ourselves, not as servants of ourselves, but as servants of Christ. That is how James defined himself, a servant of Christ. Why? Because Christ died and was raised for him. James no longer lived to serve himself. He lived to serve Christ. The gospel defined James as a servant of Christ, and the gospel defines you and me as servants of Christ, doulos, rather than servants of self. We no longer live to serve ourselves, but we live to serve Christ who died and was raised for us. Elizabeth Elliot shares an apocryphal story. Apocryphal means that it's not actually in the Bible. That speaks to the difference between serving Christ and serving self. Listen carefully. One day Jesus said to his disciples, I'd like you to carry a stone for me. He didn't give any explanation, so the disciples looked around for a stone to carry, and Peter, being the practical sort, sought out the smallest stone he could possibly find. After all, Jesus didn't give any regulations for weight and size, so he put it in his pocket. Then Jesus said, follow me. He led them on a journey. About noontime, Jesus had everyone sit down. He waved his hands, and all the stones turned to bread. And he said, now it's time for lunch. In a few seconds, Peter's lunch was over. When lunch was done, Jesus told them to stand up. He said again, I'd like you to carry a stone for me. This time Peter said, aha, now I get it. So he looked around and saw a small boulder. He hoisted it on his back, and it was painful. It made him stagger, but he said, I can't wait for supper. Jesus then said, follow me. He led them on a journey with Peter barely able to keep up. Around supper time, Jesus led them to a river. And he said, now everyone, throw your stones into the water. They did. Then he said, follow me, and began to walk. Peter and the others looked at him dumbfounded. And Jesus sighed and said, don't you remember what I asked you to do? 
Who were you carrying the stone for? So friend, who were you carrying the stone for? Who are you serving? Are you carrying the stone for the one who carried the cross for you? That's the question here. Do you see yourself as a servant of Christ, doulos, or as a servant of self, diva? May the gospel truths rehearsed here enable you to see yourself as a servant of Christ, a doulos, so that you might what? Submit to God's purposes in the trials that come knocking on your door. That's the first point. Second point, second way that we submit to the trials, to God's purposes in the trials that come knocking on our door is by greeting them with joy. Greet trials with joy. Look at verses 2 and 3, please, of James 1. Verses 2 and 3. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Why in the world would we greet trials with joy? Because this. They test our faith. That's what this says here. The testing of your faith. And that testing of our faith produces something that's really precious. It produces steadfastness. Now, now that word's a good word. Write that word down. Steadfastness. Excellent word. Steadfastness is the capacity for you and for me to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty. It's patience in the face of delay. It's endurance in the face of opposition. It's fortitude in the face of fear. It's perseverance in the face of adversity. It's not a meek, passive submission to circumstances. No, it's a strong, active challenging response to trials. That's what it is. Steadfastness enables us to think clearly about God, ourselves, and others. Steadfastness enables us to think clearly, to not panic, to not be cowards and run and retreat, but to think clearly about God, ourselves, and others in the midst of trials so that then we're able to live the realities of our faith in this world. You see, steadfastness is the quality that enables us to image God in the face of adversity, temptation, or persecution. Steadfastness won't let us quit. Steadfastness won't let us quit. And friend, steadfastness is only produced one way. It's only produced when trials touch your faith. When trials come knocking on your door. So when they knock on your door, please answer the door. By the way, they they will break the door down if you don't answer. But answer the door and answer it with joy. The Navy SEALs, sea and and land, sea, air and land forces, are some of the most elite soldiers in the world. And their toughness, their strength is forged in a six-month course called the Basic Underwater Demolition School, or BUDS. Listen to the Navy's description of the BUDS course. Quoting, The first three weeks of BUDS will prepare you for the fourth week, better known as Hell Week. During this week, you will participate in five and one-half days of continuous training with with a maximum of four hours sleep in five and a half days. 
This week is designed as, listen, the ultimate test of one's physical and mental motivation. You will learn the value of cool-headedness to think, perseverance, think steadfastness, and team work. Listen to the description. It's a small description of this week from a Navy SEAL. And off we went again, running hard to the beach, away from the gunfire, away from this madhouse, into the freezing Pacific in what felt like the middle of the night. As so often, we were too wet to worry, too cold to care. Whistles began blowing again and again. This meant we had to low crawl toward the whistles all over again. But this time, not through the smooth blacktop, but through the soft sand. In moments, we looked like sand beetles groping around the dunes. The whistles kept blowing, one blast, then two, and we kept on crawling. The instructors ordered us back into the surf deep so we could stay there for 15 minutes maximum immersion time in water hovering just under 60 degrees that's colder than the ice water in your refrigerator we linked arms until we were ordered out to more whistles and more crawling then they sent us down to the surf for flutter kicks heads in the waves then more whistles more crawling back into the water for another 15 minutes we were ordered to grab the boats over 100-pound boats, and get them in the surf, which we did without much trouble. But they made us paddle hundreds of yards, dig and row, lift and carry, dump the boat, right the boat, swim the boat, walk the boat, run the boat, crawl, live, die. We were so exhausted, it didn't matter. We hardly knew where we were. We just floundered on with bloody knees and elbows until they ordered us out of the water. I think it was just before midnight, but it could have been Christmas morning. We switched to log physical training in the surf. No piece of wood in all of history was ever heavier than our eight-foot hunk of wood that we manhandled in the Pacific surf. After all of our exertions, it was a pure back breaker. We were put right back to work, lifting the boats into a head, into a head carry for the run over to the chow hall, only another mile. When I got there, I was as close to collapse as I've ever been. But they still made us push them out, lift the boat, work up an appetite. Eventually, they freed us to get breakfast. We had lost ten men during the nine hours that had passed since Hell Week began. Nine hours since those yelling, shooting gunmen had driven Class 226 out of their classroom. Nine hours since we had been dry and felt more or less human. They were nine hours that had changed the lives and perceptions of those who could stand it no more. I doubt the rest of us would ever be quite the same again. Everything we heard was true. You think you're a tough kid? Then go right ahead and prove it. Go right ahead and prove it. You can't be a Navy SEAL without buds testing your strength and motivation. And you cannot be a mature Christian without trials testing your faith, producing steadfastness. Trials. They prove the genuineness of our faith, which is more precious than gold because because faith is what pleases God and trials prove the genuineness of the very thing that pleases God and it produces, they produce steadfastness. You see, faith that is untested, faith that it's untested by trials, lacks steadfastness. And without steadfastness, you cannot be made perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This truth, this truth is why we greet trials with joy. Or why we count it all joy, as verse 2 tells us to do, when we meet various trials. Our joy, dear friends, comes in with the trials produced by God's grace. Our joy doesn't come from the trials, but from the Lord of the trials. Now catch this. 
who endured the cross for us. That's right. Jesus didn't just command us to go to bud school. He went before us to the worst bud school you could ever go to. You see, our joy comes when we fix our eyes on Christ. And we do that in Hebrews 12 too. Hebrews 12 too. Look what this passage says to us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We sang this morning that he ever intercedes for us. You are Jesus Christ, risen king. You intercede for us. That's my hope. That's your hope. Our joy is the joy that was set before Jesus in this passage, Hebrews 12, 2. It's the joy of the resurrection and the glory of God that he was going to. And in like manner, the joy that is set before us is the resurrection and the glory of God that we are proceeding to as Corey prayed right before the offering. You see, what motivated Christ is the same joy that motivates us. We joyfully submit to God's purposes and trials, despising the shame of them. We don't like the trials. We don't like the shame. We don't like the suffering. Jesus despised it, it says here. He despised the shame, but he endured it because of the joy that was set before him. And he's seated there on the right hand of the Father. And we look to him. We look beyond the shame of the trial and the pain of the trial and the loneliness of the trial, and we see Jesus and his glory and his promise to share that glory with us. This, my friends, is how God teaches us to greet trials with joy. And it is so important that we submit to God's lesson and greet trials with joy. This morning, when I walked up to the church, the Abley family was greeting us. And they have three children, Jesse, Sam, and Grace. And little Sam was there, and his daddy said to to him, Sam, here comes Mr. Pino. Look him right in the eyes and give him a joyful greeting and shake his hand. God is saying that to us when it comes to trials. He bends down and he says, Hey, Al, I want you to look Mr. Trial right in the eye and give him a joyful greeting and shake his hand. Now, I so appreciate the Abley's working with Sam. I imagine there was a day when maybe Sam didn't quite as joyfully greet people as he did me this morning, right? There was a season of training, Sam, right? Well, there's a season for God to train us because like so many of the children that we all see here at the church, we don't want to greet Mr. Trials. We could care less about Mr. Trials. In fact, we're a little ticked off at Mr. Trials because he's interrupting our agenda. We want to go play. We want to go do anything but greet this big, tall, ugly person that I have to look in their eyes and say, hi, Mr. So-and-so. Well, we do that to God. We say, no, thank you, God. I don't want to greet Mr. Trial. So we pout, or we play shy, or some of us, and I've seen this in the church, just throw ourselves down on the ground and throw a tantrum, you know, just, what's that child doing over there screaming and yelling? Well, his dad asked him to greet Mr. Pino, and you know, Mr. Pino, so. But, but we don't want to submit, because isn't that the issue? It's submission, isn't it? It's the whole idea of, son, I want you to get out of your little world, and don't be so selfish. 
yeah, I know you think you're shy, but that's actually just being selfish. And can you please look at Mr. Pino in the eyes and greet him? And also, you're submitting to dad. The Bible says to honor your father and mother. And so right that moment, that little child has a decision to make. Nah. And off they go. And when Mr. Trial comes into my life, so often, friends, God is kneeling down next to me saying, Al, I want you to greet Mr. Trial, Mr. Trial with a, a smile and a, and a handshake and joy. And I go, nah, nah, I don't think so. And just like so many of you, I've seen you do it. God, being rich in mercy, patiently endures my rebellion and my foolishness and my anger and my tantrums. And he says, son, let me lift your little face. We're not really going to move from here until you greet Mr. Trials. <laughs> so would you do that? And then when I continue to throw my tantrums, he, he says, look, look me in the eyes and see my eyes looking at you from the cross and know that I endured far worse. I despise the shame of it, but I saw the glory of it. See the glory of it in me now so that you can endure despising the shame of it, but living for the glory on the other side. And let's go ahead and greet Mr. Trial with joy, shall we? Oh, friends, if we will obey God in this point, he will transform our lives. If we will obey him in this command to greet trials with joy, it will transform us. It will transform us. It will transform us. I, I am well aware of the trial of loneliness of the single mom who puts her head down in that pillow at night all alone with the weight of raising those children. I, 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 I'm aware of the loneliness and the fear of that, of that mom who... who who doesn't know what to do. I, I, I'm aware of the pain of, of, of walking in purity and saying no to desires and then, and then failing and, and, and that, that, that trial. Will this ever stop? I, I, I'm aware of, of the pain of the parent who at night is crying to God for the salvation of their child, of their son or their daughter, and wondering, what will I do? Am I going to fail again? I'm aware of the pain of, of physical loss, of illness, the fear that comes when you hear that, 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 that doctor say you have an illness that is incurable. We face that. I thank the Lord it's not something that, 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 that is fatal, but, it, but it's, that, it's that sound of your wife has something that there's no cure for. I'm aware of that pain. God wants to speak to you that on the other side of that pain, there is glory that awaits you. And that glory is none other than that you would be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Look at verse 4. James 1, 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect 
that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The third way that we can submit to God's purposes in trials is that we let steadfastness have its full effect or its perfect work in us. This word, full effect, there's this Greek word, teleos. It's a favorite word of James. It's this word, perfect. It can be translated full effect. It can be translated perfect work. It's actually the word that is used there in the second part of the verse, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Friends, the second command of this passage, the first one is greet trials with joy. The second command is, let this steadfastness work in you. Let it have its perfect teleos work, so that you may be perfect teleos. There's a connection here. There's a play on words. Let it have its work. Let it have its perfect effect. Why? Because with the command comes a promise. Here's the promise. If you let it have its perfect work, I know it's hard. I know the trial is difficult. I know the tears are real. I know the pain is horrible. I know the fear is there. I know the loneliness is there. But if you let it have its perfect work, here's the promise. Verse 4. You'll be perfect, you'll be complete, you'll be lacking nothing. That's the promise. Command, promise. You see, you let steadfastness have its perfect work, its full effect in you when you remind yourself of the promise of God. The very promise of God he gives us right here of being perfect and complete one day, lacking in nothing. And you do this in the midst of your trial. See, steadfastness teaches us to think clearly about God, ourselves, and others in the midst of the battle, when the gunfire is going off, when we're exhausted, when we're bleeding, when we're confused and disoriented. Steadfastness is that strength that a seal needs to have in combat that you and I need to have every day as we grow in Christ. Without it, we don't grow in Christ. See, you submit to God's purposes in your trials by letting steadfastness work you out spiritually. See, this spiritual workout is what perfects your faith. It is what makes you mature, tested, a strong believer. It is like working out in the gym. Makes one strong physically. So steadfastness makes one strong or mature spiritually. You can't just want to be strong. You must go to the gym and work out. And you can't just want to be a mature Christian. You must let steadfastness have its full effect as you joyfully greet trials. I often reluctantly go to the gym to work out. While I desire the strength and the stamina, it produces, I hate the process of lifting weights, biking, sweating, spending an hour or so there. But friends... Without doing the work, there will be no strength and stamina. It is pie in the sky thinking to desire strength with no strain. It is pie in the sky Christianity to desire maturity without trials. It does not exist. It is a fantasy league of football. You are not playing the game. You are sitting there watching others play it. God says to you, get in the game. Give till it hurts. Serve when it's not convenient. Greet Mr. Trial with a joyful countenance and shake his hand. He says, good morning, Mr. Trial. Oh, the custodian forgot to set their clock uh, to the right time, and we're not going to get in for, you know, another 45 minutes. Welcome. Oh, the toilet that I fixed and spent all that money for is leaking again? Okay. Oh. 
Doctor, you, you say I have what? And what's that going to mean? Oh, you mean I'm, I'm being let go? Next month? But you don't understand. I've got bills to pay. Greet them. Greet them with joy. Because trials, they're God's gym. And they work us out. And they test our faith. And they test the genuineness of our faith. And they produce not physical muscles and strength, but spiritual muscles and strength. It's called steadfastness. I mean, so many of us would go to a gym so that we would look really buff. We would look a certain way physically. God says, whatever, you're going to die. How's that for encouraging? But he says, you know what? Go to the spiritual gym, seriously, and work out spiritually so that you would be strong spiritually. So that you would look, oh, friends, Divas want to look like the buff guys at Shoeless. Dulosses want to look like Jesus. So who do you want to look like? And if you're not into working out, you could care less what those people look like. Your bank account, the car you drive, the house you live in, how important is that? The clothes you wear, the people you hang out with. Who do you want to look like? Do you want to look like the world? Or do you want to look like Jesus? I can tell you this, scripture is full of examples of this. Physical workout, it has some benefit, some in this world. I'm I'm doing it, I want to live long, I want to have stamina, strength, I don't overeat, I'm trying, okay? All right. But, but you know what scripture says? Spiritual workout, training for godliness, which is what we're talking about here, has benefit in this life in the life to come. Oh, don't live for this life alone. Live for the life to come. When that's your mentality, then you greet Mr. Trial with a handshake and a smile. My friends, we have to let steadfastness have its full effect so that we'd be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect. What does that word mean in verse 4? What does that word perfect mean? It means free from any flaws, without blemish. Listen, attending, attaining the end for which we were created. Doesn't that sound like God restoring us to the original creation that he intended for us? Complete. What does that word mean? Complete means meeting all expectations with integrity, wholeness, completeness, undamaged, intact. Completeness is a wholeness. And how about that last part of verse 4? If you could put that up there. That last part of verse 4. Lacking in nothing. Folks, you know what that means? It means never wanting. Being fully satisfied. Have you ever been fully satisfied? I haven't. You will be one day if you're a true Christian. And steadfastness today is a down payment of that day. And that day enables me to go through this day, even though this day is painful and hard. 
You see, folks, what we have here in verse 4 is a description of the man or woman of righteousness. It's the, it's, the, it's the description of what the whole Bible is about. It begins with the man of righteousness, Adam and Eve, the man and woman of righteousness, and then they're corrupted by sin. Then the whole Bible is about God redeeming us back into that image. And at the end of the Bible, at the end of the Bible, we're going to be glorified and we're going to be like that. God's going to restore that. And not just our bodies, and not just our souls, and not just to look like Jesus, but creation will be restored. And that's what steadfastness is all about. You see? That's what trials are all about. That's why, that's why trials are to be greeted with joy. Because this is the end to which God saved us. This is the end to which the trials perfect us. And this is the end to which every Christian strives with all of Christ's power that works within them to attain these things by faith. But we know, we know that we will never fully attain them until Jesus comes back. It's only on that day that we will be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. But friends, this hope, this hope of future grace, this hope of future glory, this is what motivates you and me. This is what keeps us in the game, what Corey preached last week. This is what enables us to greet trials with joy and let steadfastness work its way in us, have its full effect in us, so that on that day, We will look like Jesus. For the first time ever, you're going to be fully satisfied. Think about that. Perfect, complete, lacking nothing. People spend their whole lives trying to get there. And one recession, one accident, one one, one cell of cancer, one, one crook coming in to steal everything, one murderer to take a life, one nation rising up against it, and we put, our, we put our hope in this world. And this world, this world is a fantasy league, man. Get out of the fantasy league. Get on the field and let's play. And let's, let's, let's run the race to win it. Because God promises it for us. And we may get wiped out. Listen, we may get really beat up in this world. No problem. I'm not living for this world. This world is training. It's bud school. It's, 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 it's the week that's going to form me, and it's the week that's going to give me the steadfastness, which is from God, which will then result in perfection and completion and being fully satisfied. I'm not going to go for this cheap imitation. Why? 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 James 1.4 offers us, here's a fancy word, eschatological hope. What does that mean? Eschaton last at the end, ology study of the, the last day hope, the hope that's out there motivates me here. This hope of glory and perfection that will be ours at the return of Christ. One day we will look like him and all of these trials will work together for God's glory and our good to conform us into Jesus image. That's what the Bible says in Romans eight twenty eight to 30. Romans eight twenty eight to 30 says the following. That's a good one to write down as well. Romans 8, 28 to 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Really? Cancer? Yes. Accidents? Yes. Prosperity? Certainly. Adversity? Definitely. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So what's God's purpose? Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. What did he predestine us for, guys? To be conformed to the image of his son. To look like Jesus. In order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glorified is that side of the stage right now. Called is this side of the stage. 
Glorified's over here. Glorified is Jesus coming back, and I'm perfect. Alpino is perfect. I know, hard to believe, but Jesus says it's going to happen. He is complete, and he lacks nothing. And that's your promise. That's your promise. That's your promise. And it only comes through trials. Touching our faith. Producing in us steadfastness as we trust the Savior. Is this something to rejoice in? Oh, yes, it is. It certainly is. In conclusion, in your notes, you'll find a phrase there. Maturity in Christ is the end product of your trials when you let steadfastness have its full effect. Maturity in Christ is the end product of your trials when you let steadfastness have its full effect. Folks, we need to define ourselves as servants of the Lord. We need to stay low and stay humble. Don't think more highly of yourself than you are. You're a servant of the one who died for you. Don't live for yourself as a diva. Live for Christ as a doulos. Next bullet point. Greet every trial with joy. Stay humble and stay joyful. Don't allow selfish discouragement and depression to overtake you when trials come. See those trials as means to to testing the genuineness of your faith so that it would produce steadfastness in your life and that steadfastness would result in perfection, completeness. Let the joy of the Lord be your strength. When... When, when, I, when I'm in faith, I have joy. When I have unbelief, I complain. Show me a humble Christian who has faith, and I don't care what they're enduring, they will have joy. Show me a proud Christian who is unbelieving, and they will be grumbling and moody and distant and, and just hard to live with. Diva, doulos. Joy, grumbling. Faith, unbelief. Have joy. And if you don't, then go back to step one and find somebody and say, help me. I've lost my way. I don't believe the promise anymore. And number three, count the future glory of Christ greater than the present trouble of trials. Count the future glory of Christ greater than the present trouble of trials. And that's when it's stay in the game. Stay in the game. Stay humble. Stay joyful. Stay in the game. Steadfastness will never allow you to quit. Look to the cross. Look to the glory of God that has promised you despise the shame and stay in the game. Let's bow our heads in prayer, please. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to preach this message. Lord, I preach it primarily to myself, but I also preach it to my friends here in this auditorium. Lord, I pray that you would use this message to to work in us faith, that steadfastness would be present, that we would be joyful in the face of trials. We would not only be joyful, but we would actually greet them with joy, count it all joy in light of you, Jesus, in light of you, you counting it all joy, despising the shame, but for the joy set before you, you endured the cross for me. You died and were raised for me. And that would give me the grace to greet trials with joy, 
to let steadfastness have its full work, its perfect work, its teleos work in me. And Lord, that one day this promise of perfection, completion, lacking nothing, Lord, that that would be ours. It is going to be ours, but it would affect us today, not just that day. Father, there is a day that all creation is waiting for. May we long for that day. May we live today in light of that day, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand and let's sing this song. It's a closing song. There is a day that all creation's waiting for.